2: So it sounds like Comcast has fallen out of the running to buy some assets of 21st Century Fox, which leaves Walt Disney Company as the remaining suitor here. And they are expected to announce a deal any day now here to talk about that is Paul Sweeney US director of research and senior media and internet analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, Paul you have been covering this company for 27 years you know this place inside and out what exactly is disney going to go after that 21st century currently has and why
0: well this is a if they buy these assets from 21st century fox it will be a obviously a significant deal you know probably 50-60 billion dollars of value there Um, but it's really going to be the defining legacy deal for Bob Iger. Uh, Just in the past two or three years, the media business has been tremendously disrupted by the Netflixes of of the world and the whole uh, unbundling and the cord cutting associated with the pay TV package. That's really upended everybody's business model, including uh, the Walt Disney Company and the mighty ESPN. So if you're Bob Iger, um, you really have to position your company for the next 10 to 20 years. And I think the way they feel like they need to do that is they need to, do a couple of things. One, they need to bulk up on even more content, even though Disney arguably has the best content in the world. By buying the 21st Century Fox uh, film and television studio, you get even more uh, film and television production, plus an amazing library. They can use that content to create uh, or program their direct-to-consumer offering that they announced for next year, their version of Netflix. Um, you also get a lot of international assets, uh, To big assets, one in Sky for Europe and Star India uh, in India, which really helps Disney increase its international exposure, which I think they've been under exposed internationally before in terms of their uh, percentage of operating income. So that's a big plus for them. And then third is they get uh, a controlling interest in Hulu, which is a direct competitor to Netflix. And maybe you know having direct control over Hulu will allow Disney to really drive that business forward and try to make that a much uh, bigger competitor to uh, Netflix.
2: So do we have any idea why Comcast Dropped out because we talked a lot about why the acquisition of the Sky Network in particular was really beneficial for Comcast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think Comcast and and Verizon was also mentioned there. I think, uh, kind of from the get go, uh, the Murdochs have kind of sent out some signals that they prefer to sell their assets to Disney for a variety of reasons Uh, some regulatory um, and some cultural. I think the cultural one is that the rumors that James Murdoch. Uh, who was CEO of 21st Century Fox, will get a leadership role uh, within Disney, potentially setting himself up for an ideal world, in his mind, to be a successor to Bob Iger. Is that That really possible? It seems incredibly far-fetched that, A, the Murdochs would ever sell their company, and B, that they would ever, quote-unquote, work for anybody else. But um, we're in very crazy times here in the media space, and... uh, and I think if you're Disney, one of the the real shortfalls in the Disney story is that they do not have a succession plan for Bob Iger. They they had a very well defined one up until two or three years ago, and it all fell apart. And since then, they've been scrambling, and they have not been able to identify, you know, an external candidate or an internal candidate. And it doesn't really seem to be anybody on the horizon. So this might fulfill one of their needs if it all were to work out. Uh, so, it, crazier things it seems to have, have happened, but this would certainly be right at the top.
2: What do you think the price tag is going to be for Disney?
0: It depends uh, kind of what assets they buy, but, you know, the numbers that we've run, um, you know, you've put all the assets together that presumably that they're looking at, it could be 50 to $60 billion of enterprise value. So, um, and then what Fox would be left with would be kind of a remain co, which would be the Fox News cable network, the Fox uh uh, broadcast Network um, and, uh, you know, a couple other assets there. And that would be – and the Fox Sports 1. And that would be a much, much smaller company, you um. And then the question would be, what do the Murdochs do with that smaller company? Uh, and then I think the expectation is they would probably remerge it into uh, News Corporation, which is the company that houses all of their uh, print businesses, the Wall Street Journal and, and all their papers around the world, and maybe create a little bit of a, a bigger company that way. So there's lots of pieces out there. The bankers are working uh, crazy hours, I'm sure, trying to make sure everybody uh, – you know, every, all the pieces fit together.
2: I'm just trying to wrap my head around James Murdoch and the cultural fit or lack right. thereof with Disney. And right. That's, that's kind of mind-boggling. It really
0: is. And, you know, D- Disney being the family-friendly uh, company and and Fox, uh, you know, on across all of its portfolio of assets, kind of being much more out there on the edge in terms of the programming that its studio produces, the TV shows, the Bart Simpsons of the world. And uh, so they're very, very different culturally. Um, but I think the, um, the assets that... Uh, you know, uh, Disney would be buying. Uh, I think actually would fit very well with the company, and then what remains to be seen how the how the people fit in.
2: And, and frankly, I mean, maybe Disney wants that diversity, that sort of edge. Um, I'm just wondering about the timing. When you think Disney is going to announce this?
0: Well, this is very interesting. Uh, the company. I'm I'm about to head out to Burbank on Thursday morning. Out to the Disney, they're having an analyst meeting there where they were going to uh, kind of. Uh, uh, screen their new Star Wars movie which is going to be a big driver for their company and their, for their stock they hope so that was already established for Thursday I think what they'd like to do is once since they already have their analysts and their investors in a room out in, out in their Burbank studio is let's announce the deal then and uh, you know let's bring uh, the Murdoch uh, Rupert and his sons up on stage and let's try to really sell this deal as a as a great deal and I think that's the event uh, that Disney would like to, to to do there nobody does events better than Disney so I think that's kind of how they like to announce the deal to the world.
2: Yeah, my heart's really bleeding for you. You're going right. to go out to California for this ama- to watch movies, to watch the premiere of Star Wars and right. uh, have an, an amazing uh, presentation, an incredibly interesting announcement, hang out with your friends and uh, go out for a few drinks. <laughs> well, Paul Sweeney, it's been real. Please That's bring right. me back a souvenir. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I, I'm struck by the high-yield bond market, how people have been calling for its demise for almost a decade now, almost as soon as it started surging after the uh, after the credit crisis. And yet here we are with another year of pretty impressive gains, uh, up more than 7% so far this year, following a 17.5% gain last year. So what's ahead for next year? And uh, has it already gotten to be too good to be true? Should we expect losses? Here to explain it all to us, is Ken Monahan. He is director of High Yield for Amundi Pioneer in Durham, North Carolina, but he joins us here in our New York studios. So Ken, uh, what's your projection for next year?
3: You know, Lisa, um, our crystal ball at this point is so foggy, it looks more like a snow globe. So, um, so just we, polish
2: it up. Well, you know,
3: we're we're working on it. You know, I think that the first half of next year is much easier to predict than the than the back half. And I think uh, the first half of the year, you know, today we're waiting for news from the Fed. Uh, our expectation is we're going to get several more moves, probably three next year. Uh, and the question is what the ECB does as well and what kind of an impact that ultimately will have on the high yield marketplace.
2: So you think that still the high yield bond market is highly dependent on actual- of the central bank's More than anything else, I
3: think that I'm not saying highly dependent. I think that that's just one major variable, and with rates as low as they are, we haven't been in this situation before. You know, theoretically, the high yield market should earn should earn its coupon next year, so it er should earn somewhere around five percent plus or minus a little bit. The current high yield bond market is currently yielding about five and three quarters percent, as you indicated. It earned a little bit more than seven percent this year, if you look at the Bloomberg Barclays Index. Uh, I don't think it'll match that next year, but if earned a 5% return, that would be actually pretty reasonable. Um, the question really is is how much uh, headwinds do we have out there and to what extent is the, will the uh, activities of central banks contribute to that?
2: So moving beyond the macro story, one thing that I found fascinating this year is that within the high yield bond market, you've seen a number of potholes, companies that just fall out of bed, yes. suddenly tank. Uh, there have been some... Resurrections. We look at Valiant, for example, which seems to be doing all right. Uh, but going into next year, which companies do you expect to be the next potholes?
3: <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to name specific companies. There are certainly industries. You can whisper, them. You can whisper them. There are certainly industries that we're watching. You know, telecom is an obvious one. Um, retail, I think, is an obvious one as well.
2: So in other words, you don't think the retail carnage is over?
3: I think that the uh, the juggernaut known as Amazon is going to continue. Um, having said that, I, I don't think we were as nervous as some, uh, you know, coming out of the third quarter's numbers, uh, or the, really the second quarter's numbers, which were perhaps a bit weaker, and people had panicked, and uh, a lot of the retail names had sold off. Uh, I, I don't think um, uh, Amazon's going to replace the entire retail market. Uh, you know, I, I said to my analysts uh, earlier this year, I said, you know, I, I, I've lived through environments where Internet was supposed to replace auto uh, auto uh, car dealers. Uh, and then um, uh, uh, the uh, flat screen TVs in our home were going to replace all the movie theaters. And yet those businesses continue. It doesn't mean they don't have to re- reconnect or re-engineer their businesses, but it doesn't mean that they go out of business either.
2: Well, and with telecom, before I let you uh go into other sectors that you see as as potentially experiencing some pain next year. Telecom is fascinating because you have some behemoths like iHeart Communications that's trying to bang out some kind of a debt restructuring agreement. And then you also have Sprint, uh, which with its on and off again a deal with T-Mobile that fell through. Uh, left at the
3: altar, right? That's right.
2: Left at the altar. There's a question of how it can continue uh, in the future alone without uh, a bigger footprint and without better technology. It does not have the cash. It has tons of debt. What is Masayoshi, uh, Mas- Masayoshi's son going to do uh, from SoftBank, the big investor? Right, These are all huge questions, but you think that the route that we've seen and Frontier, the route we've seen so far this year is not over. Is that what you're saying?
3: I, I still think we're going to get we're going to have a very bumpy road in telecom for 2018, um, but doesn't mean that the sector can't earn a good return. In fact, because if you look at where the yields are for that sector right now, and those bonds are trading at pretty significant discounts to par. So if we can get, for example, some asset sales from some of the large players in that space, uh, if our friends at Sprint, Sprint connect with somebody else or some. How able to monetize or show value for their uh, enormous bandwidth uh, uh, that that could change the uh, the outlook for the sector in terms of returns.
2: So one big question that I have is the field of triple B rated companies has expanded pretty wi- wildly in <laughs> yes. the past few years. This is the lowest rung of investment grade. Yes. What is the likelihood in your mind that they will get downgraded to high yield and that you could see a rush? Of debt kind of move into your world that is unexpected.
3: Well, if you if you look at a couple of things, it's interesting you bring this up because there's two things we would note. One, if you look at the per- at the percentage of corporate debt outstanding that's investment grade versus GDP, uh, it's exploded uh, since the end of the recession. So it's moved up by about threefold. If you look at the percentage of high yield debt, it's increased as well, but by a much smaller percentage. So there's a lot more investment gra- grade debt that's been issued. A lot of it's been used as well, particularly for triple B companies for shareholder-friendly activities. So whether it's repurchasing shares or paying out dividends or for acquisitions. And those are the places, you're right, where you could have this risk of downgrade going forward.
2: I'm so interested in this. Thank you so much for joining us. I could talk about this all day long with you. Ken Monahan, (laughs) co-director of High Yield at Amundi Pioneer, talking about what to expect next year. We shined up his crystal ball and we got some insight. It's really interesting to me that the telecom route is not over. Uh, We will be discussing more about this. I'm sure. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, A lot of people think of the Federal Reserve as being an independent body that is trying to maintain financial stability and uh, keep the economy afloat. Desmond King, an Oxford University professor, seeks to dispel that notion with his new book, uh, Fed Power How Finance Wins. It was published uh, last month and it was co authored along with Lawrence Jacobs. Desmond joins us now. Desmond, thank you so much for being with us. Can you just start? Can you just start with this idea that a lot of people have with the Fed as a neutral player and explain why you think that is inaccurate?
4: The Fed is clearly trying to make decisions on the basis of objective economic data and to do the best to manage the economy. Uh, But but the way in which this occurs is more tightly related to financial markets and to the needs of certain economic interests than is commonly recognized. Um, And we developed this argument really about the Fed's extraordinary response to the recession in 2008 and the way in which it um, began the processes and the um, unconventional monetary measures, including, for instance, um, propping up many financial institutions and then going into this expansive quantitative easing process. These are measures which um, are never scrutinized by a body such as Congress to ask whether they are the most appropriate or they are measures which may or may not have various unexpected distributional consequences.
2: So the idea here is that because the Fed took these moves that directly propped up big banks, it shows that they are biased toward a market in which the biggest banks are the way they are and dominate finance and are not open to another way of the system running, is that correct?
4: Yes, I think bias is maybe a very too strong a term, but um, in the way in which it responded, there were other options, for instance, trying to do more for the mortgage market, for the relief of mortgage holders, um, who had been allowed to acquire uh, many borrowers, had been allowed to acquire mortgages which they couldn't afford in the six to seven years before the crisis of 2008, um, which was in large part a regulatory failure. Um, And then when it actually in this dramatic way since 2008 um, we we think in the book that um, the processes of accountability around this were, were, were really very weak and remain quite weak and we have at the moment then a, a, a situation in which central banking is um, really in quite a new era and it's not just the Fed that the Fed is the, by far the most important this applies also to the ECB and the, the Bank of England in terms of its their interventions in the uh, financial markets um, through quantitative easing. The the sorts of measures that have been undertaken would be more commonly associated with fiscal policy, or at least they have fiscal policy implications in a way which um, moves beyond traditional understandings of monetary policy. Right.
2: Well, so I'm wondering, what are the measures that should be taken to have better oversight of the Federal Reserve and other central banks for that matter?
4: Well, I think we need to think about who is um, appointed to the federal banks, whether there might be a broader range of um, uh, members of the FMC, for instance, who uh, are more familiar with different aspects of financial markets, um, whether there should be um, me- members of the economics profession who aren't quite so much part of the consensus about monetary policy. Um, so whether there might be independent reviews of of the Congress, um, by, sorry, by the Congress of Of federal policy,
2: you know, this is tricky because we're coming at this at a moment when a lot of people have raised concerns that the Fed will become even more political uh, in the U.S. Given some of the demands uh, on what we would like to see from growth from our from our current president, so uh, you know, it's sort of tricky when you start to say, "Well, they should have more oversight from potentially political operatives," right?
4: Yes, I think it is. and is. I'm fully alert to that, and I, I entirely agree with you. But I, the, uh, central banks are now, including the Fed, are part of a, of a uh, quite extraordinary financialization system. That has occurred in the last three decades, um, and so the way they operate, the importance of markets, the way uh, that policies have effects on markets, is is deeper than it was. So we, in some sense, have to think about new institutions of accountability. Yeah. There is a there, there's a very strong argument that you know Congress dominates the Fed, uh, that that the idea that the Fed is independent is a myth, and that um, this is a common scholarly view, and that the Congress is able to um, uh, really exercise powerful control over it. I, I think if you look at history, it's rather different. The the, the Fed has been very good at maintaining itself as a, as a neutral technical agency or, um, and showing its um, capacity to develop policies as it thinks most appropriate. But it's hard to see processes of accountability there uh, in these institutions.
2: Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, your book is fascinating and it's certainly timely right now. Desmond King, uh, Andrew W. Mellon, Professor of American Government at Oxford University, joining us from Oxford. Uh, He is the co-author of a new book, Fed Power, How Finance Wins, a fascinating argument and uh, an important one at a time when the Fed is changing hands with respect to the chairmanship. It is time to throw our crystal ball to Chicago, where Jack Ablin is. He is chief investment officer at BMO Private Bank, which oversees about $68 billion. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking about what to expect for 2018. And uh, the most important question of the day, of course, is are you going to be buying Bitcoin?
1: My, uh, I don't know. I doubt
2: it. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> I right, can't afford it. <laughs> all right. Uh, in in all seriousness, next year, uh, a lot of people are seeing pretty sanguine economic, a uh, pretty sanguine economic backdrop, uh, synchronized growth. Pick the phrase that you will. What's your most contrarian call for the year? I, I'm
1: going to say that you know, if I'm looking for things that could potentially upset the apple cart, it's it's going to be a trade. Um, you know, we still have these uh, open items on NAFTA and some other trade agreements uh, outstanding. And I can't think of a single economist who stood up and said, you know, uh, ending our current trade agreements going to help our economy. Um, so, you know, we still have, um, you know, some of these lingering issues outstanding. And I guess I'd call that contrarian in that, you know, that's the one thing that could, you know, run counter to this, uh, you know, positive momentum on on growth
2: all right so as uh, an investment manager how do you hedge against that risk
1: well I'm not sure I want to do too much of that right yet um, these are things I'm going to be watching for I'm watching for that uh, any indications there uh, but we're still gonna you know stay in um, Uh, we're watching for inflation, um, also, um, but we, we believe we're not gonna really run out of production capacity or even labor capacity until probably mid 2019. So I think, you know, right now our base case scenario is that we're still in the clear. We're bunting along at around, you know, a little bit more than potential GDP while this is the, one of the longest recoveries that we've had on record is certainly the shallowest. And so, um, you know, it's it, it's uh, certainly a recovery not built on a lot of excesses, which is, is probably a good thing.
2: So, Jack, if you are watching for inflation, I take that to mean that you expect it to pick up more next year. How are you positioning to uh, capture some of the gains from that and to avoid some of the losses that, say, uh, may come with longest the longest term bonds?
1: right um so right now we're you know still somewhat um uh, you know uh, under our uh target duration so you know we we are um you know, uh, uh, somewhat uh, cautious there. I think what we're watching for, for example, any evidence that the European Central Bank uh, takes its its uh, foot off the accelerator would perhaps uh, you know raise rates uh, in Europe. You know, keep in mind one of the main reasons we believe why the ten-year Treasury is 2.37 or 2.4 and, and not three or more is because the German bond is 0.3. Uh, so. And as we start to see rates abroad move higher uh, that probably raises the floor on uh, you know on, on our rates here so yeah so we're still somewhat cautious on uh, interest rates um and uh, we're still fully invested in equities um but would be looking for evidence that Either inflation rises, credit spreads widen, anything that would drive interest rate growth faster than profit growth uh, would prompt us to reduce our equity risk. We don't see huge um, evidence of that soon, uh, but that would be something that would suggest perhaps we're either the end of the business cycle or end of a credit cycle.
2: The other thing that some people are watching is the yield curve, the differential between long and short term rates. And uh, when you talk about the ECB and whether European rates are going to raise. A lot of people think that the ECB is going to keep its deposit uh, rate where it is next year and just work on potentially tapering some of their asset purchases. So let's say they don't make a move at all. Could we see a yield curve inversion because the Fed's going to be raising short-term rates and that longer-term rate's going to be pegged?
1: Yeah, we could, but I wouldn't necessarily read a ton into it. Uh, I think that, you know, it it would invert for more more or less technical reasons than uh, anything, um, you know, economic per se. Um, You know, we still have a lot of distortion in the bond markets. And, um, you know, it's sending a signal that, you know, may not really be telling us what we've traditionally um, interpreted in the past.
2: Well, you know, this is an important point, uh, because a lot of people are saying, look, even if the U.S. yield curve inverts next year, it won't necessarily be a harbinger of a recession the way it has in the past. And yet when I go back and I look at the uh, meeting minutes from Federal Reserve meetings back in 2006 and 2007, A lot of the Fed officials at the time were saying the exact same thing. Yes, we're seeing yield curve flattening. Yes, we're seeing inversion. But it means something different. It is technical. It was not. Does that give you pause?
1: Well, there was no quantitative easing going on back then. So, um, you know, I'm not sure exactly what they were Necessarily drawing on to suggest that an inverted yield curve would have sent the wrong signal. In fact, for us, it was a it, it was a concern. In fact, credit spreads uh, widened to a point where they broke out in the third quarter of two thousand seven, which to us was a signal to say we do need to reduce our risk. When momentum finally broke down in January of oh eight, that was a, a clear signal for us to say let's you know watch the play out of this year from the sidelines
2: got it uh, with respect to credit you said you're still fully invested in equities you've had you have lowered the duration of your funds meaning the exposure to uh, interest rate risk I'm wondering where you stand on credit? Yeah, I mean
1: that's that's really remarkable to me. Um, credit spreads are still remarkably narrow, um, so there could be a little technical factors there also as uh, investors are clamoring for yield. One of the things that you know we're noticing though is that uh, downgrades are outpacing upgrades now, and they have now for the last two or three quarters. So um, I'm not. Necessarily flapping my arms and saying this is the end of the credit cycle, uh, but it is something that we're watching, and it's a, certainly a metric that I want to pay attention to.
2: Where's there more risk in the lowest rung of investment grade or uh, in high yield?
1: Um, you know, that's probably a good question. I would say in high yield. Um, in fact, you know, it's funny. Uh, investment grade actually is outpacing high yield so far this year. Um, so um, you know, this this blind. Um, uh, bl- you know, blind reach for yield is 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 really starting to fall apart. In uh, the, the notion that perhaps investors are really starting to look discern, you know, what's a, a better value. Um, so we're seeing it in the in the bond market, not seeing it so much in the stock market. But I th- it sounds like it appears like we're going to get a sector rotation uh, going into next year.
2: Jack Ablin, thank you so much for joining us. Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer at BMO Private Bank, which oversees $68 billion and is based in Chicago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like?